So there are three different types of people groups we, we have to look at at Sermon on the Mount. First you have, who was Jesus talking to? Jesus was talking to a whole different people group of a different time and a different era. And then you have the evangelist, Matthew. Who was Matthew talking to when he wrote the gospel of Matthew? And, and who was he preaching this to, sharing it with him? Then you fast forward some 2,022 years, and now you have us. So how does this pertain to us? What do we do? How do we live this out? And how do we walk this out? Well, newsflash, if you're an unbeliever, there is no possible way that you could walk out the Sermon on the Mount. If you're a believer, it's different. So I, I want you to know, if you're an unbeliever this morning, you're going to say, well, how do I obtain this information from the Word of God? Well, you can't until you repent and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You repent of your sins, turn from your evil, wicked ways, and you confess Christ Jesus as your Lord, meaning he is owner of all of you. He has all of you. So again, the first was, who was Jesus talking to? In this time, we, we know that the text says the crowds and the disciples. But this was a, a different error. Who was the disciples? Who, who was the crowds? It was the people of his time. Jesus, Jesus in this time was always butting heads with the religious leaders of that time. Jesus was always going to war with them. About like how some of us go to war with different political leaders. Well, Jesus in his time was always going at the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, and all that. I mean, he called them out left and right all the time. And Jesus was truly upset because of the burdens that these people was putting on his people's head. Because Jesus came for his people. The second is, who was Matthew's audience? Remember that after Rome had been overthrown... That, that Jesus, the, the whole setting here, after Rome gets thrown over, or the temple gets thrown over by Rome, then, then you had no longer the high priest or the Sadducees are in control. Now it's the Pharisees running around, you better do this, you better do that, you got to be this way or that way. And Jesus just, he ain't dealing with that. And Matthew wanted the people of his time to know that Christ the Messiah, he came for you. He bled for you. He died for you. He abolished these things. He fulfilled them. This is what he wanted us to know. And then the third type is us. So how does this sermon and Sermon on the Mount, as we unpack it, how does it pertain to us today? Well, from the ethics side of things, this teaching from Jesus sets forth the way of life for the Christian disciple and the Christian community. What is a disciple of Christ? A follower of Christ for the believer. So for us today, it is a community of believers. This is our, this is our manual. This is to tell us the do's and the don'ts. And it's good news because it is obtainable through the Holy Spirit. So how did we get to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, first we must understand that between the two testaments, from the old to the new, there was 400 years of silence from God. God no longer talked. He, he, didn't, he didn't do nothing for 400 years. And the reason I'm giving all this is because, again, context matters. You have to know why are we here? How did we get here? What all took place? 
So I want us to always look back to the beginning. So we're going to do like a whole overview this morning. And, and, and I, I said it this way earlier. This is going to be like a fire hose lesson. You just kind of open your mouth and take it in. Write down on notes. That's where I really want to see our church at in 2022. I would love to see people walking in with their Bibles, with their notepads, ink pens, just head down, not even looking up at me. Because if you're looking up at me, you're not taking notes. You're looking at me. But I don't want you sleeping neither. I'd rather you be truly digging in. So Matthew chapter 1, what did we have there? We had the genealogy of Jesus. We know that from the time of Abraham to the Christ, it was 42 generations put in between there. There was 14, 14, and 14, which added up to 42 generations. Then you had Christ's birth, which we celebrated on Christmas, where Mary gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph wants to leave her because he just don't understand how she's pregnant. She done cheated on me. An angel of the Lord appears to him and says, No, Joseph! She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. And lets him know he shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. And this was major to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Isaiah. As we'll see in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God Almighty came to be with us, the believer. He came to be with you, the unbeliever, once you receive him. He came to redeem your soul. Friends, that's great news on this cold, brisk Sunday morning. Then in Matthew chapter 2, we find out that Herod finds out about Jesus, acts as if he is going to worship him, and he tells the wise men, he says, go find this baby. And, and he tricks them, and, and they get a message. They get warned in a dream uh, not to return to Herod, for they, they know that he is ticked off. See, once Herod finds out that he's been tricked, that, that they are not coming back, he's mad. So what's he do? He says, go kill all the two-year-old and under males. Kill them all. Kill them all. I don't want the Messiah. I'm the king. I could hear Herod now. I'm king. He's not. Kill them all. So then Joseph, he flees to Egypt after Herod died, and then he was told to go to the land of Judea. But instead, he withdrew from there because he found out that Herod's son had taken over in the kingship. So where'd he go? He went to the district of Galilee to a city called Nazareth. Which this, again, is also to fulfill prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. There's a lot of prophecies going on right there in the first few books of Matthew. We have to study the text to know these things. Then we get to Matthew chapter 3, and this is where it really takes off. Now you get John the Baptist. He's in the wilderness, and what's he doing? He's preaching, repent, 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 for the kingdom of God is at hand. And man, they're looking at him crazy. And you see, you had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. As he was preaching this repentance, they come to his baptisms, and, and they're watching this. And, and what's John do? John laid into him, man, in chapter 3. He said, you brought of vipers. You brought of vipers. 
And he let them know the one who was coming after him was mightier than him. Being Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And he will do the separating and has the power to throw into the unquenchable fire. Now, leading up to that, you're at the, around the first 30-year mark of Jesus' life on this earth. And then what happens in chapter 3? Jesus shows up to get baptized with John. John kind of resists him. And at first he says to the Christ, no, you, I shouldn't baptize you. You should be doing me. And, and Jesus let him know. He said, no, John. You need to baptize me. You need to baptize me. And then in Matthew chapter 4, the story picks up and we know that after Jesus was baptized, he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights. He fasted these 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted on three different occasions. Three different times the enemy has tempted Christ the Messiah. And after the third time the devil tempted him, the angels came to him and were ministering to him. Now I want to ask you this. Are you better than Jesus? You say, Pastor, what, what do you mean? Why would you even dare ask me, am I better than Jesus? Because if the devil can take him up on high places and tempt him, what makes you think he can't bother you? See, so many times people's running around beating on their chest. Well, I got this or I got that. Newsflash, you don't have nothing. Christ has everything and we need Christ in them times of temptation so stop saying I have all the power he can't bother me you have no power except through the unction of the Holy Spirit which means the anointing of an indwelled Holy Spirit is the only power so you left on yourself alone can't do nothing you need Christ stop beating on your chest like you're bad the devil laughing at you he says okay they think they good. They think they got this. They ain't got Christ. Boy, I'm ready to devour them. Because he is seeking around, prowling like a lion. I don't know if you've ever watched History Channel or Animal Planet, but what does a lion do? Man, he lays low, and he waits on that one little person to get off by herself, and wham, he snatches them up. And we are sheep, friends. Last time I checked, sheep was dumb, myself included. We need a shepherd, and Jesus is our shepherd, and he is protecting us from the lion. We ain't doing nothing, resting in him, praising in him. We are not untouchable. We're not until we unzip this old earth suit and we step into glory. Then we're untouchable. Then we're untouchable. So now after the angels minister to him, he comes out of the wilderness and Jesus now starts his public ministry. And oh, his public ministry is beautiful. Jesus calls his first disciples. And this part is very important. He called who? He only called four. He called Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We see this in chapter 4. 
But now yet he goes all throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. See, here's where it gets good. Jesus says he's proclaiming it. Now he's doing this deal. He's laying hands on people. He's casting out devils. He's raising the lame. He's, he's lifting up the paralegic, telling them, get up, walk, do what you got to do. He's, he's letting people repent. And people's getting saved and healed because they're in the presence of the glory of God. And he's doing all this to show that he is God in the flesh. He's not a magician. He's not none of that. He is G-O-D. He is God Almighty. He is Abba Father who has come to do a ministry and a work and redeem his people that was lost because of sin. That's where he takes off. So you have to understand this. He's casting out these demons and people's getting healed. You know he was tired. And Jesus always went off to certain places to be secluded and pray, as we learn later on in the Gospel of Matthew. But he started to notice he didn't just get a few to follow him, but our text tells us that it was great crowds. Which this leads us now here to Sermon on the Mount. We have made it to chapter 5. All in one Sunday. Praise the Lord. But the Sermon on the Mount is probably best known, is the best known part of the teaching of Jesus. Though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear it. For this is Christ's own description of what he wanted his followers to be and do. And the world says everything different than Sermon on the Mount. I have never heard it put any better than a wise man John Stott once said. He called it Christian counterculture. It was everything opposite of what the culture says. See, fast forward to us today. We get mad at our husband or wife. All of a sudden, we want a divorce. What does Jesus say? No, don't divorce. Or else we say we want lust. What does Jesus say? Do Don't lust. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not lust. Do not fornicate. Do not do none of this. These are things Jesus told us to do and not to do. And then we walk into a church house, and because they're preaching and teaching the full gospel, the full text, we say, no, that's too legalistic. They're calling out sin. Praise God we're calling out sin. And we're not just dusting it under the rug. Because Jesus called out sin. We're supposed to. This is our mandate. This is the mandate. And from the time of Jesus' teaching, we have been passing through decades upon decades of this delusion. We're walking around like, oh, well, that was then. I'm not worried about that. That don't pertain to me today. You don't understand what social media says. You don't understand what MTV Cribs looks like. It tells you to want bigger houses and bigger cars and bigger things. You don't get it, Pastor. I live in a materialistic world. Well, you shouldn't. You should be thinking about the world to come, your heavenly dwelling place. Instead, our society says we want sex, drugs, all the things that make us feel good. We don't want your Bible, we don't want your Jesus. Keep your Jesus over there, 
Give me what makes me feel good now. And what you don't realize is your soul is damned to hell. Anything you put above Christ becomes your Lord. That becomes what you worship. We need to get back to living in the Bible. Some of our youth and the younger generation, my generation, it's all about peace, love, and reality, and um, what can I meditate on, and what can make me feel better, and how can I get in tuned with the earth? And I'm like, oh, you die outside of Christ, you really going to be in tune. Because once you're taken down to the grave, to the ground, and your soul is now being judged because you've put your meditation and all this above Christ Jesus being your personal Lord and Savior, you've opened up the gates of hell. And your soul is in your hand. Then today, they do endorse our generations endorse everything that Jesus said to the church in the first century. In Revelations chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church of Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Do you know how many outsiders is looking at the church today saying that? The unbelievers? Because we look so much like the world. We're walking around like chameleons. We, we act like the world. We talk like the world. We smell like the world. And the world's saying they belong to us. They don't belong to Christ. I know their works, but on the inside, they're dead. They're dead. Friends, I don't want to be a dead church. I want to be alive and active moving but the church has embraced this we have started to gently fade in the times we are conforming we are going against what Christ told his bride everything that we're doing we're going against the very words that Christ told the bride we're dust in our children's sin under the rug we're dust in our brothers or sisters sin under the rug we're saying it's okay for you to live like that. When Jesus says no, it's not okay. We're hypocrites. But I want you to know something that from the beginning of the theme of the whole Bible, from the beginning to the end, God's purpose is to call out people for himself. Holy, set apart, and belonging to him. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, the cherubs are standing around. In Revelation, they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Then we get warnings to pursue holiness. But yet we turn a keen ear to it. So the Sermon on the Mount is to be seen in this context. It describes the repentance and righteousness that belong to the kingdom. We must remember that it describes repentance and righteousness that belong to the kingdom. So what are we to look like? Different. Different. 
Jesus emphasized that his true followers, the citizens of God's kingdom, were to be entirely different. We're not to look the same. We're to be set apart. A city on a hill. Not a city within the city to where you blend in and look like the city. So, to me, the key text in Sermon on the Mount is found in the first part of Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. Let's look at verse 6, or chapter 6 and verse 8. It says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Notice that that was underlined. Do not be like them. Do not be like them. Set apart. This reminds us of God's word to Israel in earlier times. In uh, Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 3, it says, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statues. You know, we walk around, and if, if the government tells us to do this or do that or marry Johnny and Larry and Terry and Derry and all of them, the same sex, we say, oh, we got to do it. No, you don't. The Word of God says different. We don't walk by what they say when it goes against the Word of God. That is the only time you buck the system. And you let them know, I stand on this and this alone. We don't abort babies. It's God's life. It's his creation. Now, I want you to know, maybe you've done that in the past. Please hear me on this. If you've done that outside of Christ and you are in Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. Forgiven. And when the accuser of the brethren tries to remind you of things, you let him know, no, I'm covered under the blood of Jesus. And I've been set free. And you can't hold that over my head no more. You don't give him that authority. Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So it is the same call to be different as it was in the Old Testament. And this will run all throughout Sermon on the Mount. So you're asking yourself, is Sermon on the Mount relevant? Yes. It teaches us all about the Christian. As we're going to unpack it all the way through. It's going to show us these things. It's going to lay them out on what a Christian looks like and what a Christian don't look like. Is it practical? Is it still for me today? Yes. If you're a believer. You say, well, I can't obtain it. No. If you're an unbeliever, you can't. So Matthew 5, 2 says this. And I'm rounding this corner. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, what was it? Keep coming back. You'll find out. What does it mean for me? Well, if you're saved, it's your blueprint. But if you're not saved, it means nothing to you. 
you're thinking, I've never heard a preacher say that to me before. Well, I'm giving you facts. If you don't have Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the Sermon on the Mount means nothing. You're, you're just coming, sitting in a pew, hearing a guy tell you about Jesus. But it means nothing. So I'm going to hit you with three words this morning. And I want everybody to think about this. Are you saved? Are you? Do you believe in the person and work of Jesus? Do you believe in everything that Jesus Christ did on the cross? Do you believe in the finished work of the cross? Do you believe that he came down to this rugged earth because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, that sin separated you from God the Father, and that there was a sacrifice that had to be paid? There was an animal that had to be slaughtered and slain, and it's not a coincidence that they call him the spotless lamb without blemish. Because all through the Old Testament, that's what they would do is a sin sacrifice. Kill off animals. There was blood shed on an altar. And what Jesus do? He shed his blood on an old rugged cross on Calvary. He laid down his life so that you could be won back into the kingdom of God. So you would no longer have to be separated from God the Father. No longer would your destiny be hell. Your destiny would be heaven and heavenly places. But if you've not repented and believed in the death, burial, and resurrection and what he did and why he did it and how he did it, outside of that, you're lost. You're lost. Now, does because you're a Christian mean that life is going to be easy and peaches and cream on Mulberry Street and there's never going to be no more trials and tribulations? No, because James proved that different. He said, count it pure joy when you meet trials and tribulations of various kinds for the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. Let it have its perfect and full effect that you may be lacking in nothing. So when James writes that, it lets the Christian know, yes, we're going to go through trials and tribulations, but thank goodness we got an advocate. Thank goodness we have Jesus. Jesus who's standing in our place. Thank goodness that when God the God Almighty sees this wretched sinner, William Benito, he don't see me. He sees the covering of the blood of his son. And friends, if you're outside of Christ, you can have that this morning. You can have it. Just repent. Repent. So as Miss Joan comes up here and gets ready to lead us in worship, and another song, I do want to always say this. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, see me. See me. If you are not sure without a shadow of a doubt that you are saved, covered under the blood, see me. See me. Maybe you need prayer this morning. See me. Maybe you just need to get down on your knees before God and hit an altar and cry out to him. Do it. I can't wait till the day that the church is full and in the middle of preaching, Leonard Ravenhill said it best. People runs to the altar and they're just repenting. Now, for the churchgoer of these days, when that happens, they're going to call security. They're going to say something's wrong. And I'm going to say, stop. The glory of God is falling. 
That's what church is about. This is a hospital for sinners. This is a triage center, trauma-warned. We're better than U of L, though, because we got the great physician. We don't need a DEA pad. We got a heavenly pad, and we got a heavenly father, and his name's Jesus, and he's calling you this morning. He's calling you. So, dear Heavenly Father, as we get ready to stand and worship, Lord, how I ask that you would search our hearts, oh God. God, I ask that you would search us deep, far and wide. And if there be any questioning within any, any part of us, whether it be deep, surface level, or whatever, Father, I pray that we would release them problems and ask them questions. And, Father, that we would just lay it all before you, Christ, because we need you, Jesus. We need you. Father, I want everyone in this room to be able to do what we're very about ready to sing about. Shout from the rooftops. To be able to proclaim your name. To walk through our city with a spirit of boldness. Not, not being cocky, but just have a boldness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. To where we'll tell anybody about Jesus and we'll tell everybody about Jesus. That we'll be able to take part in helping to populate heaven and plunder hell. Jesus, I pray you would burn the fire within us, God. Please, Jesus. Have your way, and we pray all these things in the name above all names. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, my personal Lord and Savior, do I pray these things in, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people, including myself, said, Amen. Let's stand and worship.